Welcome to episode 88 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And this week we are going to cover true crime and paranormal from the state of California. California, here we come. Yes, I have got the true crime, one that you have heard of, but I hope I can give you some little insight of maybe things that you don't know. And Bethy has... Oh my gosh, am I really going to say this? The booze and the booze. (laughs) You said it. I didn't. You said it. (laughs) I said it. I have the paranormal story this week and the beverage. And I was really excited because I don't think I've had the beverage for California. No. Like ever. You haven't. Because you always pick sparkling. (laughs) Sorry, but I'm not sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But. I didn't want to do wine. I didn't want to do sparkling. I wanted to do something different. Okay. So I found a cocktail. I found this on allrecipes.com. Close your eyes and imagine being in sunny California with this great drink. Perfect for chilling down with on a hot summer day. Surf's up. It's called the California Surfer. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't know where you were going with this, but okay. I was reading the description, Mom. (laughs) Okay, so this recipe on all recipes is, it makes five servings. Okay. So it gave me, like, it gave me the ingredients to pour in, like, a tub. Like, to pour into, like, a jug or something. (laughs) A tub or a jug. (laughs) Big difference, darling. Well, I guess I should, properly, it's called a pitcher. I kind of broke it down to make it into a single served cocktail for you all. Okay. And there's a special treat in there for you. Okay. Because it's a cocktail with your favorite liquor, liqueur, liquor, in it. Okay. (laughs) Jägermeister. Oh, that's a, what, Aphrodite? What? It's not like a Greek mythology thing? Aphrodite? (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? Aphrodite? It's like an after-dinner digestive drink. That's what Jägermeister is. Anyway, so (laughs) Jäger is in here, and I know you love Jäger. I do enjoy it. Well, it's in here. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not all that's in here. (laughs) Straight-up Jäger shots. You actually don't even really taste the Jäger. Oh. So how I broke it down was I did, and I guess this would make two cocktails. Okay. Because I split it into the two glasses we have right here. Mm-hmm. It was one of those little cans of pineapple juice. Mm-hmm. I pour that over ice. And then I did two ounces of Jägermeister liqueur. Okay. Jäger. <laughs> yes. There's Jäger in here. And then I did two ounces of coconut flavored rum. Oh, num. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's it? That's it. All right. <laughs> Three ingredient recipe. I like it. Well, yeah, over ice, and then you're supposed to, you know, garnish with an orange slice. Not happening. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> then you stir it all up and you enjoy. And I actually learned something too in all my cocktail making because I am just such the mixologist now. Did you know you're supposed to pour in the liquor last? 
So, like, when you are making a cocktail and you do, like, the juice or pineapple something? juice, you're supposed to put that in first if you're not doing it in, like, a shaker. Really? Because the liquor will sink to the bottom. Mm-hmm. So, if you put it in first, it's just going to sit there on the bottom. Well, that's why you stir it. Well, I know that, but it could just stay to the bottom. You not you might not be able to mix it all up. So, if but you pour dang, juice, that last that last drink is really good. <laughs> but if you pour in the juice first, and then the liqueur or the liquor or whatever you're putting in there, uh-huh. it'll kind of sink sink to the bottom, and then you could stir it better. Okay. Or you can just be like mom and just have a really strong last gulp. <laughs> well, surf's up, mom. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. All I taste is pineapple. (laughs) I put two shots of Jaeger and two shots of coconut rum in there. That's so hard to believe because really, honestly, all I taste is pineapple. I know. It's definitely kind of hard to enjoy this beverage when it's like, you know, freezing outside. 30 degrees outside. You know, and we're like. (laughs) And we're talking about surfing. Preparing for Christmas. But this would be nice, like, by a pool or on a beach. In the summer. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about sledding. We're talking about surfing. And even though it does taste like the pineapple juice, it's not terribly sweet. I think the Jaeger takes away... The sweetness? The sweetness. It's still pretty sweet, though. I I, I, I think it is. But not, not as sweet not, as you'd think. Not Mai Tai sweet. No. But... Well, the pineapple juice is just sweet. And you could always cut back on the amount of pineapple juice. True. I bet I probably didn't need to use the whole can. <laughs> or maybe unsweetened. Is there a thing as unsweetened pineapple juice? I don't know, but this has a lot of sugar in it, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the sweetness of the drink. <laughs> but I guess that's what makes it kind of dangerous that you don't taste the liquor in there. No. I think this is another one of those that we put down for the pool. Put down at the pool. Of course, you're making a whole tub of it. So. We're going to make a tub of it. It's like jungle juice in college. Oh, man. Forget the pitcher. Beth is making a tub. <laughs> She's going to be bathing. She's going to be surfing. <laughs> One of the reviews on the All Recipes yeah. said, Awesome drink. We call these surfer on acid on the central coast of yeah. California. Yeah, that's what actually the bartender at the speakeasy, when I asked him about California, he said, hey, you could do that surfer on acid. So the cocktail I made, I obviously gave you the recipe for what I made for us tonight. But the one online calls for one tray of ice cubes, six fluid ounces of Jaeger, six fluid ounces of coconut flavored rum, and two and a half cups of pineapple juice. Oh, All right. Well, you sit back with your surfer drink, and I shall regale you with a story that you might have heard about before. Well, my topic is one that everybody will recognize. Even my sweet husband will recognize. Well, he better (laughs) recognize. (laughs) Calling you out, Tom. (laughs) Calling you out. (laughs) this topic he's not a true crime enthusiast but I think he probably has heard about this Um, and I'm talking about the black dahlia oh my gosh I am so excited for this wow what a story so this can be ranked among one of the most notorious crimes in U.S. definitely oh yeah in LA I would definitely say so 
But this is another case, though, that we know the name Black Dahlia. We know kind of like little bits and pieces of it. I'm so excited to like hear the whole story. Well, that's it. Even with all its notoriety, little detail is known. And it is, as most everybody knows, unsolved, even now, 74 years later. Wow. 74 years. Now, I'll be honest, there's a lot out there on this case. There are assumptions about the victim. There are several suspects today, as there were then. But today, as then, there are really no concrete answers. Ugh, frustrating. Let's start with the victim, as I always do. And I'm going to add my two cents worth here. I think Elizabeth Short was victimized twice. Hmm. I'll explain my reasoning for that in a little while. Elizabeth, who preferred the nickname Betty, and that's how I'm going to refer to her throughout the entire oh, episode. Love that. Okay. So Betty was born July 29th, 1924 in Medford, Massachusetts, and that's about five and a half miles outside of Boston. So in some cases, you'll see that she was born in Boston. I think it's just the proximity to Boston. Her parents were Phoebe and Cleo Short. According to some sources, Cleo designed miniature golf courses for a living. Oh my gosh, how fun of a job. But when Betty was five, the Great Depression hit. Oh my gosh, so, not fun anymore. <laughs> miniature golf was the last thing oh on people's man. minds. Shoot. So Cleo's means of supporting his family failed. And he decided to leave his family behind and move to California. I mean, you know, if he you just can't left bring his family. Yep. If you oh. can't bring money in, I guess you just evacuate. I don't know. So when Betty was 16, again, according to source, because she had asthma, she moved to Florida to escape the winters in Massachusetts. Oh, she soon left Florida and moved in with her father in California. So now she's 18 or 19 years old. Okay. Moving in with her dad turned out to be not such a great idea. I guess they fought a lot. So Betty mm -hmm. heads back to Florida, but not before being hauled into the L.A. police for underage drinking. Oh, no. Her fingerprints were taken, as was mugshot, but she was never charged. While in Florida, Betty meets and falls in love with Major Matthew Gordon, who was in the Air Force. Unfortunately, a year into the relationship, Gordon was killed in a plane crash. Oh, no. I guess Betty claimed that she and Gordon were engaged, but his family says the couple were only dating, not engaged, which may have been closer to the truth because I came away from my research with the opinion that for all her good qualities, she liked to exaggerate on a lot of things. Either way, Betty is devastated by her loss and heads back to L.A., now, this was a really crazy time in, in U.S. history. Jobs were few, especially for women. It was not uncommon for people who owned houses to take in boarders for extra money. Hmm. That was the case with Mark Hansen. He was married and a father of a daughter, but the wife and daughter lived elsewhere. Don't know anything else about that. <laughs> well, this is like a common theme, apparently. Oh, Betty, yeah, really. Betty moved into Hanson's house with a girlfriend who Hanson did not get along with, so he tossed them both out after a short period of time. Okay, so hold on. Hanson's the guy. 
Hanson's the guy. And, and he Betty didn't get along her... with his girlfriend or no, no. Betty? No, no. Betty and her girlfriend. So a friend of Betty and her, and Betty moved into Hanson's house. Okay. But Betty's friend and Hanson did not get along. So gotcha. he kicked both of them out. He kicked Betty and her friend out of his house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Betty did move back into Hanson's house a short time later. But this time she and Hanson argued and she was asked to leave. Gotcha. So in many resources, it said that her and Hanson kind of had a relationship. He owned a nightclub. Mm. I don't know. Some some sources say that they just kind of knew each other because of this live-in situation. Others said that they did have a relationship. Okay. There you go. She moved to the Chancellor Arms, where she shared a small apartment with six other women. Now here, though, like that little tidbit, though, right there, that they knew each other either from the nightclub or just from living together. Like it's that it's those kinds of misconstrued facts that I'm sure this is why this case is unsolved, because it's like, don't you think those details should be known? Well, like I said, it depends on what source you look at. I know that's just crazy, though. That many did say that they did have a relationship, but is that just assumed because he's a male and she's a female and she was living I, with I him? I don't know. You know See, what I mean? This, like, it's just I don't know. So she shared this apartment with six other women, all paying one dollar a night. Oh, Betty did not have a job, and I'm not sure she really wanted one. I <laughs> 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 just putting that in there from all I all I read. At one point, she went down to San Diego, where she met Robert Red Manley. The two became very close friends. He denied ever having sex with her, but admitted that the two would often stay the night in hotels. <laughs> but he always <laughs> slept in a chair, giving the bed to Betty. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Because a chair sounds so much more comfortable. And that right. sounds so believable. I mean, even <laughs> if they were close friends, what's wrong with them sharing a bed then? <laughs> oh, boy. I think Manley is going a little far with those details. Oh, He also stated to police that he had the ability to hire Betty, but she would never show up to the scheduled job interviews. Ah. He told the police that he drove Betty back to L.A. on January 9th, 1947. And dropped her at the Biltmore Hotel, where supposedly Betty's sister was staying. Okay? Okay. So. So. That's that's the story. On the morning of January 15th, Betty Beshering and her three-year-old daughter were out on a walk when they discovered what first looked like a mannequin. Mm. On closer inspection, Betty B, I'm going to call her Betty B, realized that she was actually looking at the body of a young, naked woman who had been cut in half. Upon inspection, the police found that besides being cut in half, the victim had extensive cuts on her body, most notably on her face. The killer had carved what is known as a Glasgow smile or a Cheshire grin, and that's a cut from each ear to each side of the mouth. Just reminds me of the Joker. Exactly, exactly. She had been completely drained of blood. So bizarre. And that's why she looked like a mannequin, because she was just white. She was missing some organs, and she seemed to have been posed. They also so there was noted, no blood on the scene? It was just her body? 
they also noted that there wasn't any blood in the area. (laughs) Sorry, I should just let you finish. My bad. So she had been killed somewhere else, then brought to the location, which was a vacant lot. But the body was right by the sidewalk. So they wanted it to be seen. Exactly. The killer wanted her to be found because otherwise he could have thrown her in the field. But if it's right by a sidewalk... How do people not see somebody dumping and posing a body? Well, late at night. It was a vacant lot. It was a big area that was just weeds, basically, grass. Okay, Okay. so there was nobody living around that area. Okay. The FBI was asked to help in the investigation of the brutal murder, and within 56 minutes, they knew who the victim was. Oh. Remember, Betty had been fingerprinted in Uh, 1943 when she was brought in for underage drinking. So after fingerprinting the victim, they were able to find, obviously, the match. The autopsy showed that Betty had died from severe, hard blows to the head. Oh, gosh. She had been mutilated after death. That's the only good thing. She had been cleanly cut between the second and third lumbar vertebrae and... It was a, like I said, a very clean surgical cut, not anything easy to do. It would have had to be done by somebody with surgical training. Hmm. Her body had been thoroughly washed. So there was no fingerprints, no evidence on the body. It was a hard case to solve from the very beginning. But add to that the newspaper (laughs) or what is called yellow news. Have you ever heard of yellow news? No. News that is printed with little or no legitimate or researched news source. Oh, oh wait, 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 wait. Isn't that called fake, fake news? Fake news? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, my question, Mom, do you think that this case could have been solved if it were to have happened today? Yes. Just with everything that we have now? Yes. You do? Yes, I do. And I'll, I'll go into some things that, so, so back to the fake Sorry. news. It, Sorry, I was it just was, thinking about that. No, it's fine. Yeah. It was around then also. Wow. Big surprise. <laughs> Mostly to create big sensationalized headlines to sell papers. Well, that's just like that actor that I covered that was found stabbed. And they had all those stories that they said they found a coded journal. And yeah, all that's right. 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 Just that was to crap. sell papers, too. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it was around the same time. Right. There were four or five big papers in L.A. at the time of Betty's death. But the examiner was the one whose headlines were the loudest. The papers pushed their way into the investigation. In fact, a few sources even stated that evidence was withheld from the police by the paper. What? That's bad enough. But this is just unbelievable. A reporter from the Examiner did what was just, I believe, beyond horrible. He called Phoebe, Betty's mother, who still lived in Massachusetts and had not heard of her daughter's death. Oh, my gosh. The reporter told her that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest. (gasps) No. And they wanted to write it up. But in order to do that, they needed some background information about Elizabeth. Are you serious? Of course, Phoebe was so excited for her daughter and told the reporter all about Betty's accomplishments and background. When the reporter had all he wanted or needed from Phoebe, 
he told her, quote, by the way, your daughter is dead. <gasps> yeah. Oh, my goodness. That is horrible. I guess from one source I read, you know, he got all the information and he covered the telephone and he said to another reporter, now what do I do? I've got everything I need. I don't know. Just tell her. So he goes, okay, I'll just tell her. Hey, by the way, your daughter's dead. I lied. That just Can makes my heart that hurt. Is beyond horrible. Oh, the police were working around the clock on this murder. By now, the nation had gotten the news, but they had nothing. For some reason, murderers liked to call the press instead of the police. <laughs> Remember, BTK did that. Just, yeah, they do. So nothing's well, changed. Yeah, it's just like the Zodiac. I mean, he even sent messages to the newspaper, coded messages yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I, I, that's and that was the case here. The examiner got a phone call that some of Betty's belongings had been sent to them. Sure enough, ten days after the murder, the paper received a small parcel with Betty's social security card, her birth certificate, and an old address book with missing pages belonging to Mark Hansen. Remember. She, that's the guy that she lived with the twice. The address book belonged to Mark Hansen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So now, how about that name, the Black Dahlia? It is often said that Betty was given that name after her death by the newspaper. But I found a source that actually, initially, the papers called her, quote, the werewolf victim. Oh, that sounds terrible. Because of the brutality of the case. It is said that because Betty wore a lot of black and she resembled the lead actress in the movie The Blue Dahlia, which was popular at the time, the papers changed the name from Werewolf Victim to The Black Dahlia. But I then read that the name actually came from customers in a drugstore that Betty would often visit in Long Beach. They called the case this because of the movie, but also because Betty dyed her hair from brown to black mm -hmm. and actually looking at pictures of Betty she's wearing black in very few of them <laughs> so I'm gonna go with the drugstore customer idea because she really did not wear when she's posing for pictures and stuff she's wearing white or light well, did blue the, did the actress in the blue dahlia was she like blonde haired maybe she was blonde haired maybe because she was a blonde in the blue dahlia and Betty had black hair, so they just called it the. I don't know. I'm just trying to come up with. Well, something. that's what that's what they did. That's what the customers. That's exactly why the customers called her the Black Dahlia. Yeah, that makes more sense. And so that's why I think it came from the customers and caught on, you know. But mm -hmm. of course, the newspaper claimed it. But the werewolf killing that just is awful. It doesn't even make sense. No, it doesn't make. It doesn't any even sense. make sense. Now remember, I stated in the beginning that I thought Betty had become a victim twice. Yes. The first being her actual death, but the second being the way the 22-year-old was portrayed by the press. <sighs> they called her a party girl who drank a lot, a prostitute, a movie mad girl who would do anything to get a part in a movie, and a, quote, wild lesbian. Okay. First of all, who cares? Who well, cares on these any were, of that, though? Like These were all not true, and they were slurs. Yeah. And they were slurs on her name. So. But like, she's a victim. Ugh. Party girl who drank a lot. Actually, Betty did not drink. <laughs> Two, a prostitute. 
Yes, it is true that Betty went out with a lot of different men, but so did many women at the time. They didn't have money. The only way they could get a meal was by going out on a date. Mm. A movie mad girl. I know it's often written that Betty went to California to become an actress, but there is actually no account anywhere of her auditioning or acting. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I've always just assumed she was out there to be a star. Everybody's always said that she went to California to become an actress, but there's no, there's no account anywhere of her auditioning. Wow. Another thing, she was a lesbian. Betty was in fact known to be quite homophobic. So again, Mm -hmm. not true. Just to give you another idea of how this beautiful girl was described. This is from the special daily police bulletin in January 21st, 1047, volume 40, number 14. The description of this victim. Female, American, 22 years old, 5'6", 118 pounds, black hair, green eyes, very attractive. (laughs) Bad lower teeth, fingernails chewed to the quick. Why? I mean, they already know who she is. Jeez. The subject was found brutally murdered, body severed and mutilated, January 15th, 1947, at 39th and Norton. Now, they know who she is. Later in this article, they stated her name and even included a picture of her. So that was so I just found the lower teeth and fingers chewed to the quick as an interesting description. And before that, attractive. Yeah. Oh, my God. So now let's look at the suspects, starting with the man who she was last seen with, Robert Manley. Robert had been in the military, but was discharged due to mental illness. He seemed to have gotten his life together at the time Betty was with him. He did pass his polygraph test, which in those days was not as sophisticated as it is today, Hmm. but he did pass. There was just really no evidence against him. And he certainly did not have any surgical training. So Robert was checked off the list. And, and it just has aside, to be somebody trained in s- surgical cutting? Like it like absolutely to, has to be? Had to be. It was too precise. Hmm. Way too precise. So just a side note here. He was committed to a mental institution in the 1950s. Oh. Yeah. Not that that makes him guilty, but that's interesting. No, not at all. Just a little side note. Mark Hansen. The man whose house Betty had lived in. He was a nightclub owner and was supposedly obsessed with her. Sorry. What's wrong? Oh, a lightning alert came through. You probably didn't hear it, but. You get lightning alerts? (laughs) (laughs) Why? What an odd alert. (laughs) And I don't even see anything. It's not even raining yet. Okay, sorry. I'm so happy you know that there's lightning in your vicinity. God. And it is, and it isn't. Okay, Mark Hansen, the man whose house Betty had lived in, he was a nightclub owner and was supposedly obsessed with her. And remember, among her possessions sent to the paper was his black address book. Remember that with a few pages missing? Right. When confronted with this information, he readily told the police that he had given the book to Betty to help her keep track of things. The pages had been torn out by himself because they held personal information. 
Hansen was also eliminated as a suspect for the main reason he had no medical training. Hmm. Okay. Glenn Wolf. This is a name you don't see very often as being a suspect. But I read that he was one of Betty's past landlords and was described as a, quote, sexual maniac. Oh. Police found him very wanting in the being trained as a surgeon department. Okay. He was kind of, I'm sorry, he was kind of stupid. (laughs) (laughs) There was no way that he could have carried this out. Okay. Leslie Dillon. Now, here's a name that is often brought up. Dylan actually contacted the LAPD himself, saying that he was a writer and very interested in the case. After a background check, police found that Dylan worked as a bellhop, but had also worked as a mortician's assistant, so he would know how to drain the blood from a human body. But after a closer look, Dylan never worked as a morgue attendant, but instead as an ambulance driver for funeral homes. So he had lied? And Only for a few weeks. He also had an alibi. He was in San Francisco when Betty was killed. And he was just some poor guy that just called in. (laughs) Yeah. Saying he wanted to write on the story. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He was probably a little daft also. Mom. Okay. (laughs) Wow. You have some anger issues towards some of these men. Very mean. (laughs) Why would you lie about? I, I don't know. The Lipstick Killer. Have you ever heard of him? Yes, I want to cover him. Okay, He was actually arrested for three murders in 1946 in Chicago. One, Chicago. Two, 1946, a year before Betty was murdered, was when he was arrested. The dude was in jail. jail. Oh my gosh. Okay. Some say the police arrested the wrong man, though, in this case. So the Lipstick Killer was still out. Oh. Mm. The Cleveland Torso Killer. Ooh. Ever heard? No, but that sounds awful. The n- 1935 to 1938. This guy killed between 12 to 20 people. All drifters are homeless. Betty was not homeless, but she could have been called a drifter as she often couch hopped. Mm-hmm. So. Just so sad because her dad like lives there, but... I hear thunder. It probably is lightning. <laughs> I'm going to get another alert. <laughs> but this killer's MO did not match. He cut off limbs and decapitated his victims, but did not cut them in half. He also hid his victims, which was not the case with Betty's killer. Interestingly enough, a Dr. Sweeney entered a mental institution in 1935 when the crimes ended. Wait. I'm so confused. Hold on. So this Dr. Sweeney is suspected to be the torso killer. They were kind of looking at him at the time because of the limbs being the way the limbs and stuff were cut. And so they were kind of looking at him at the time. But he entered a mental institution and all of a sudden the crime stopped. So it was probably him. Hmm. So he was. So they just stopped off. looking so at him once it, he was it, in a mental institution, well, though? So they're thinking it was probably not the Cleveland killer because Dr. Swinney was the, the Cleveland torso killer that killed the Black Dahlia. Gotcha. Okay. Oh. Was that the alert for lightning? Heavy. Got the alert for heavy rain. What okay. are your alerts set to? Okay, the next three suspects I found to be crazy. I don't mean they were crazy. I mean, it was just 
Okay, you'll know what I mean. Corporal Joseph Dumas, D-U-M-A-I-S. Mom, Dumas. quit trying to dumbass. Like, come on. <laughs> oh, you are I'm so sorry. angry. No. Corporal Joseph Dumas, <laughs> D-U-M-A-I-S. How would you say that? Anyway, he actually admitted to killing Betty. Oh, he said God, he one of those. He is a dumbass. Yep. He said he was with her, but then blacked out and lost several days. Oh, no. He'd actually never been with Betty, and it turned out he wanted the attention. <sighs> so he wasn't alone in this. Several men stepped forward and admitted to the crime because this was a high, high, high profile never, case. I'll never understand that. I know you want some clout, but you're going to find clout and saying you murdered somebody. Yeah. Then there was the idea, with no name attached, of a crazed lesbian doctor who was the murderous monster attacking and killing Betty because either Betty put an end to their relationship or plain flat refused her. Oh my gosh. But there is no name attached to there, okay? <laughs> then the oh next gosh. one is totally nuts. Jacob Edward Fisk. Okay, so... Before I knew the actual truth, I was like Googling this and trying to see their relationship. I could not find anything. This dude doesn't even exist. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> he doesn't exist. Unless you're talking about the Fisk that was born in 1988 <laughs> and time traveled back to 1947 to kill Betty. Mom, that makes total sense. And this was actually a wiki prank. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So. Well, you know, was it, I forget the guy's name, that detective guy, he claimed that Ed Edwards killed the Black Dahlia, remember? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and had a picture, and had a picture of Ed Edwards, like, with Betty, remember? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. The, I did, he also said that he was the Zodiac killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well. All right. Now. <laughs> now for the two men that makes the most sense. Okay. I'll tell you about them and then let you decide for yourself. Because please don't even know. <laughs> okay. The first one is the one that you hear about most often. Dr. George Hoddle. He's often a name associated with the Black Dahlia. He was extremely intelligent, attended medical school where he studied surgery, but never practiced surgery and instead becoming the foremost venereal disease doctor in L.A. County. <laughs> okay, quite the difference. <laughs> George okay. came from an affluent family. Thus, he flaunted with his Mayan temple looking house, which sits in the middle of L.A. or sat at the time in the middle of L.A. I don't know. You've seen pictures of this house. I was just going to ask. It's crazy. Is this the house that Zach Bagans went to? Yes. yes. Okay. It's crazy. <laughs> I it's, remember it's this. It's absolutely nuts. He had 11 children from five different women. To say the man was eccentric mm. is putting it mildly. Yeah, I remember this house was crazy. Yeah. It, it is. He, he would throw wild parties and uh, it was just... After no George died, he was studying venereal disease. I know that's exactly. He probably was a hit with the movie stars and stuff. I don't know. After George died in 1999, <laughs> at the age of 91, his son Steve was given a small album. 
Looking inside, he found two pictures of a woman with dark hair. After studying the pictures, Steve was suddenly aware of who the woman looked like, Betty Short. In one of the pictures, the woman had flowers in her hair. Betty was known to wear a flower in her hair most every day. Hmm. That's probably what made the connection for Steve. But just looking at the pictures, I don't think they look like the same woman. It looks like two different women. And he was saying that they were both Betty. Steve remembered some odd things about his father. For example, there was a secret room. I don't know if you remember that from. Yep, I do. At his father's he, house. like do like abortions and stuff? That was never proven. Okay. But. Uh, the secret room at his father's house that he and his siblings knew that they were to stay away from. Hmm. All of a sudden, things just started adding up for Steve. His father, Dr. George Hoddle, could very possibly be the man who murdered Betty Short. That's kind of sad that you can all of a sudden sit there and go, All of a sudden, oh, click, click. My dad oh, it's is my a killer. dad is the Black Dahlia killer. Yeah, I mean, that's weird. sad. <laughs> Steve began his journey of looking into his father and the death of the Black Dahlia. He had access to some things because Steve had actually retired after serving for 25 years in the LAPD. Some oh. of those as a murder investigator. So this guy oh. actually oh. had a background in this. Steve acknowledged that he had worked around 300 homicides in his career at the LAPD. Hmm. As he dug deeper into the case, Steve found that his father was actually on a LAPD shortlist of suspects in the murder of Betty. Oh, so much so that the house was bugged by the police for 40 days in hopes that George would say something to incriminate himself. He did say a few interesting things, but then again, one does not know what the person on the other end of the phone had asked. Take that in account. For example, he is recorded as saying, quote, supposing I did kill Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. He said that? Yeah. His secretary. That's really weird. Yeah. She had died of an overdose and many believe that he killed her. Yeah. Now I do. Steve had also studied the handwritten letters sent to the examiner supposedly by the killer. Steve is totally convinced that the handwriting in the letters is an exact match to his father's handwriting. Did you see him? Uh, Did you yes, see I him? saw them. I'm going to add here that two experts have studied the handwriting and have said that it was inconclusive as to whether it is a match to George's handwriting. It was interesting. The ends, like the ends really stuck out to me because I think it was the the ends in the um, the letters that the newspaper received were kind of largely spaced. Mm hmm. And the ends in his father's handwriting were not. I mean, that really kind of stuck out to me. But mm -hmm. I'm not a handwriting expert, obviously. There is also an expert in face recognition who stated that she did not think that the women in the album were Betty Short. And neither did Bettina. No. <laughs> Later, the woman in the first picture was identified as Maria Marco, a character actor of the 1940s and 50s. And the second woman was actually debunked of being Betty by her own family. They looked at it and said, no, that's not her. And it, I don't think she, anyway. Why did he have those pictures of those women? If it was a Black Dahlia or not, why does he have those pictures? He was eccentric. Who knows? Maybe he had an affair with them. Maybe he kept it. I don't know. I mean, who knows? The guy was. So regardless, if the women were Betty or not. 
The pitchers did start this investigation, and he is convinced his father is the killer. In fact, he suspects his father of killing upwards of 25 to 30 women. And see, that's what my next thought process, I was going to wait for you to finish, but this is kind of a big deal. You cut somebody open and drain their blood, like, why just one person? Why just Betty? Like, that's what's right. so weird to me. That's right. such a well, he's big he dramatic a lot, thing. A lot and, more. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. So interestingly weird. enough, another thing his father is recorded as saying is, "quote This is the best payoff I've ever seen between law enforcement agencies. I'd like to get a connection made in the DA's office." End of quote. I say interesting because shortly after that statement was recorded, the DA suddenly stopped investigating Dr. Hodel. What? The chief investigator stated that the evidence collected tended to eliminate the suspect. (laughs) A few days later, George fled the U.S. and did not return for another 40 years. (gasps) Somebody helped him from the inside. So what even drew the attention to Dr. Hodel? You know, why him? Yeah, why did yeah. the police even look at him? Why was he even on that short list? This was caused by his daughter, Tamara. So his children turned against him. She alleged that her father began raping her when she was 11. Oh, gosh. I think she was around 15 at the time. She also said that her father would have orgies and she was made to be a participant. Oh, no. George was arrested for incest, but at his trial, the jury found him not guilty, mostly because there was no proof of the incest, and all the witnesses that took a stand said that Tamara made it all up, including her own mother, who said (gasps) that Tamara had implemented several men in her past of sexual abuse, including 19 high schoolers that she went to school with. Oh. Oh. I saw I mean, they showed a picture of her posing. It was a, obviously a posed picture maybe when she was in high school. Oh, my gosh, she was beautiful. Mm. Just just beautiful. So George was found not guilty of incest, but now had the police's attention. A witness came forward saying that George knew Betty, and she had been to a few of his infamous parties. Mm. We will never know what other evidence they had to make George their prime suspect because all the evidence be it physical, witness interviews, and even the wire recordings from the house are all gone. Why? 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 I don't know. They're nowhere to be found. Steve is convinced that the evidence disappeared after his father paid the investigators and the DA off. To his credit, the LAPD was very corrupt at this time. I was just going to say, all of stinking Hollywood seems to be corrupt at this time. Yeah, yeah. They they could have very easily been paid off. Hmm. So Steve Hoddle is very vocal about his conviction that his father is the murderer. He's written three books on the subject, that Black Dahlia Avenger 1, 2, and 3. He has made TV appearances, Dateline, NBC, The Black Dahlia, Court TV, Who Killed the Black Dahlia, CBS, 48 Hours, NBC, Universal, France, the Truth About the Black Dahlia. I mean, we can go on and on. Discovery Channel, Most Evil. The cast of Ghost Adventures interviewed him and investigated the old home of Dr. Hoddle, season 14, episode 12. 
So not only does Steve believe his father killed Elizabeth Short, he's also convinced his father is the Zodiac Killer. Oh, no. It's just like Ed Edwards, the guy. Now, wow. you may roll your eyes here or chuckle, but listening to this man, it is hard not to believe him. I listened to a lot of interviews and wow, I I was convinced (laughs) that Steve had solved this 74-year-old crime. And yep, it made a lot of sense that he could have been the Zodiac Killer. Okay. I mean, you just listen to him. He makes everything make sense. Even the L.A. District Attorney, Steve Kay, is quoted as saying in 2003, quote, Based on the results of Steve Hoddle's investigation, I would have no reservation about filing two counts of murder against George Hoddle. Wow. Elizabeth Short and his secretary. Wow. Yeah. I would have to agree. Interesting. But But you said that there was another suspect. I did. Even though it is totally possible that Dr. George Hoddle was a Black Dahlia killer, I'm kind of leaning to another man, another doctor, as the killer. First, I'll share some of the hypothetical descriptions of the killer the FBI profiler, John E. Douglas, came up with. Okay? He said, white man, older than 20s, lived alone, worked with his hands. The man would be described by people as rigid, compulsive, and deliberate. The man knew Betty, maybe not well, but they knew each other. Perhaps she rejected him or somehow made him angry. The body was cut in half for practical reasons. Hmm. It was easier to transport that way. Sure. The grin cut into Elizabeth's face could have been a, quote, look who has the last laugh now gesture. Oh, that sends shivers down my spine. The man must have had some contact to the neighborhood. Remember, this was a vacant lot at the time. The intersection of 29th and Norton. Yeah, you'd, you'd have to know that that was a vacant lot. Location, location, location. <laughs> the location where the body was found brings me to the man I kind of am leaning to, to be the Black Dahlia killer. Dr. Walter Bailey. Have you heard of his name? I don't believe so. Dr. Bailey had lived in a house one block from where Betty's body was found. Mm -hmm. His wife, Ruth, still lived there at the time, but he had moved out and in with his girlfriend at the time of the murder. It is very possible that Bailey knew Betty. How? Bailey's daughter, Barbara, was a close friend of Betty's sister, Virginia, and had, in fact, been the matron of honor at Virginia and her husband, Adrian's wedding. Or, in some sources, it says that Virginia was the matron of honor at Barbara's wedding but either way they were friends they they were probably good friends Mm -hmm. Bailey was a top-notch surgeon former chief of staff at LA County Hospital he was 67 at the time of the murder and had no prior records of violence so why do I think Bailey was the killer his mistress insisted after his death that she had a terrible secret about Bailey and his wife Ruth yes His wife, Ruth, they had not divorced, thought this claim was probably true because Bailey had left everything to his mistress, perhaps under duress that she would tell. Mm. I don't know. Bailey was a surgeon whose specialty was women's health. He performed mastectomies and hysterectomies. And 
some source said that he performed illegal abortions, but that I don't know about okay, that. Okay, so maybe I, I think I had heard about this guy. So he was 67, not a strong man, but Mm-mm. maybe that's exactly why the body was cut that's in why half. why he had to cut her in half, yeah. And drain her blood. Yeah. It made her lighter. Although a brilliant man, in later years it was noted that his mind was gradually deteriorating, and at his autopsy it was found that he had suffered from a neurological degenerative brain disease, which could have left him with a violent streak, if provoked. One suggestion is that Betty could have provoked him with one of her many lies, many of which she told to get sympathy. Now, she had told this lie several times. She said that she had a son who tragically died when he was very young. Mm. And this was to get sympathy. Bailey did have a son who, when very young, was run over by a car. And he had never gotten over his son's death. So knowing that Beth was... Sorry, you... (laughs) Wow. No, wow. Knowing that <laughs> knowing that Betty was using this lie to garner sympathy and money or a place to stay could easily have put him over the edge, especially suffering from his degenerative disorder. It's an interesting theory. Of course, we will probably never know who killed Elizabeth Short. Everyone involved is probably dead by now. And everything, all the evidence has been misplaced, lost trashed but like whatever what real evidence it sounds like the media was doing more of an investigation than the lap well the was. tapes would have been interesting the witness interviews would have been interesting mm-hmm. the i mean the police were working on this case i'm not saying they weren't i'm just saying it sounds like and if they did collect evidence we don't know if they collected evidence around the the where she was dumped we don't know that because so it's gone. All of that stuff is gone. This is one of the biggest cases yes. in the United States history, and this is gone. It's it's there's That's nothing. So corrupt. That is so messed up. There are no files. There's nothing on this case. So I'd love to know what the listeners think. There are so many theories out there. So I'm asking listeners to send us an email or let me know what do you think. Who do you think killed the black? Dahlia. Hmm. Yeah, I want to know theories too. That would be something fun to hear. And we can read those theories on an episode because I would really like to know. And maybe I miss somebody. You know, there's so much out there. There's so much out there. I'm thinking the guy that lives in the weird house. I think he's just too shady and his kids don't even trust him. No. That I don't know. That's weird. Mm 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 mm. Oh, yeah. Please email us or message us on social media. I want to know what people think, too. (laughs) I love hearing from our listeners, though, when they send us like drink ideas or please cover this. Like, I love that stuff. I know. Me, too. So, yeah. Get back to us. I want to know. All right. Hmm. What do you have? Well, besides this great drink. Yeah. Now you get to sit back and enjoy it. I will. As long as you don't get too angry. <laughs> huh? You were so angry at the beginning of the episode. I just want to oh, make sure I know. that the Jaeger doesn't make just you because I angry. called that guy. I didn't mean dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> sure, mom. Sure. Do, mom. Dunas? Maybe it's Dunas. That sounds a lot better. <sighs> 
Well, what's interesting is that I have another Elizabeth in my story, so that's kind of fun. Oh my gosh, again? <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited about sharing this story with you, Mom. This is this is great. This is great. Okay. Great. Okay. It's great. Okay. So you and I try to find different places for paranormal stuff. Like, you know, we've done the houses, we've done the bridges, we've done the roads, we've done hospitals like we've done all that stuff right so i found something that is totally different good okay this place is located in sunnyvale california which sounds super spooky doesn't it no it has sunny in it uh this is a haunted toys r us (laughs) i just pictured that bear You mean a giraffe? It's Jeffrey the giraffe. No, I figured Teddy the bear or whatever it's called, that bear that talks. His mouth talks. What? That has nothing to do with anything I just said. Uh Uh-huh. He was at Toys R Us. (laughs) It was Jeffrey the giraffe was the was the Toys R Us logo. Oh, I, I. but it there's was a no toy. That was a toy you could buy in Toys R Us. That's what. Well, there's many toys you could. Buy I don't know in why Toys that. R Us. Why that bear comes to mind? I don't even remember the name of it, but it talked. I, okay, go ahead. So yes, this is a haunted Toys R Us in Sunnyvale, California. The building was constructed in 1970, and from the beginning, the Toys R Us has reportedly been haunted. Okay. Not only are dolls and trucks flying off the shelves. Because <laughs> people are grabbing them for Christmas or what? I mean, they're not fly they're flying off the shelves on their own. Balls are also seen bouncing down the aisles. Swings on the swing set set up in the store would swing yeah. on their own. It's creepy. Were the dolls on the swing? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, your bear was. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Females would have their hair played with. Ew. And they refused to go into the women's restroom alone. Actually, yeah. no one really felt alone. And if you seemed to be alone. What? <laughs> What am I trying to say here? I don't know. <laughs> I'm s- so tired. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. The end. Like, I don't know. Um, I'm so tired, Mom, that I got home and Alex goes, what's that hanging out of your pants? And I look down and I have my pants on inside out and backwards. <laughs> and I had just taken both boys to school dressed like that. And nobody said anything like, um, Beth, your pants are inside out and backwards. (laughs) Bye, honey. Have a great day. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Sorry. Um... Okay, where was I? Toys are flying off the shelves. Balls are bouncing down the aisles. You're never Swings alone in the bathroom. on their own. Yes. Anywhere. You're never really alone. And and my notes don't make sense here, but so I'm just going to 
I, I don't even know what I was trying to say, but apparently many reported hearing whispers Ew. of their own names in the uh, closed stores. Ew. Like many employees would hear somebody like Patina. <laughs> That's creepy. Yeah. But it wasn't just whispers. It was one that day, teddy. It was that teddy bear that talks. One day a voice was heard over the PA system. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. No. Clear as day? Closed. Clear as day. Eight years after being open and after losing eight managers because of the hauntings. Yeah. The medium Sylvia Brown was called. Fun fact about Sylvia, but she was actually born here in Kansas City in 1936. Oh. She was a medium who had psychic abilities. She was also an author. And according to her book... Uh, titled The Other Side and Back, A Psychic's Guide to Our World and Beyond. While investigating or communicating with spirits at the Toys R Us in Sunnyvale, she met, quote, the most stubborn, ornery, argumentative ghost (laughs) she had ever met. Oh, my gosh. This ghost was John Johnson or Jan Johnson, depending on what dialect you want to go with, because he was apparently a preacher from Sweden. He was a Swedish preacher. Oh, a preacher. That makes total sense now. Who had died on the land that the Toys R Us now sat. Oh. So on the very spot where the store was built, it had used to be the farm belonging to Martin Murphy. The Murphys were a very well-to-do family. They had crossed the Donner Pass from Maine and created this huge farm out in California. Martin and his wife had a daughter, Elizabeth. And then they had a son named James. James died of tuberculosis, and soon after his death, another son was born, and he too was named James. No. Yeah. I just found that weird. Like, their son died, and they had a new son, and they renamed him the same name. Oh. Yeah. There was an orchard, a wheat field, and much more on the family's property. Now, this is all fact. After Sylvia came out in the 70s, people, you know, she came out to do this, like, research mm-hmm. into the Reading. Toys R Us and she and the seance that she did in the Toys R Us. Mm-hmm. And but after that, people really started to dig into what she was saying she heard from spirit in there. Uh-huh. And so they did find that this was fact, that there was a farm there owned by the Murphys and they kind of established Sunnyvale. So it's kind of sad that their whole farm was ripped up and they built on Toys R Us there, but, you know. Now, but according to Sylvia, John Johnson worked on the Murphy family farm to pay for his room and board. And while working there, he fell in love with the daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, okay. But the feelings were not mutual, and she ended up marrying some very wealthy man and moved to the East Coast. Sylvia's story goes on, and this is what she apparently heard from John Johnson, mm-hmm. which just sounds like a fake name, but we're going to go with it. He was a preacher, but he was working Work- as a... He was a Swedish preacher, so he was an immigrant. Uh, okay, and now he's uh, working on the farm. And now he's in California, yeah, working as like a ranch okay. hand and, you know, working for the family for room and board. Mm-hmm. Now, this is all information that sylvia received from the spirit john johnson in the toys r us right 
So like I said, the feelings of his love for Elizabeth were apparently not mutual. She married some guy, moved away. Sylvia's story goes on that one day John was out chopping wood or doing some work on that farm that required an axe. There was an accident and John Johnson bled out alone with no one finding him until he was already dead. Now, Sylvia believes that John did not know that he was dead. He refused to believe her when she told him multiple times because he would say, you know, I'm looking for Beth. He called Elizabeth Beth Mm -hmm. and he would say something, you know, about Beth and how he loved Beth or but. And so she would acknowledge, like, you can see Beth, but you need to move on, like, go into the light. And he would get so ticked off at her. He was very stubborn and did not. He refused to believe that he was dead. And she thinks and she apparently she talked Sylvia talked to a couple of doctors that said that when you bleed out, it's not necessarily painful. And so it, really he maybe in the way that he was bleeding out, he just kind of passed out and then died. And so he left like that so he doesn't necessarily know that he died because it wasn't Mm -hmm. some big life-altering pain i mean it was life-altering because clearly his life was (laughs) altered (laughs) but it wasn't some life-altering pain i don't know that's just sylvia's theory i just read a book ghost among us and i'm sorry i forgot the author james van something with a p anyway um and he said that is often the case actually the spirit Ghosts. doesn't know that the they've spirit passed doesn't over. know that they are dead. Dead, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, Jan Janssen refused to believe that he was dead, and he always talked to Sylvia about his love. "Quote: This is from Sylvia. She said, quote, okay. 'I've tried many times to explain to him that his lifetime as Johnny Johnson has ended.'" He finally got so tired of my nagging him about it that he gave me an ultimatum. If you tell me I'm dead one more time, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. (laughs) Unquote. So there. Now Sylvia agreed to do a seance at the Toys R Us. I never thought I'd ever be saying anything like that. (laughs) There's a seance in a Toys R Us. No wonder Uh, we don't have Toys R Us anymore. I know. They're all haunted, apparently. Um, The show That's Incredible sent some cameramen and photographers with her when she went to go do the seance. And this is in the 70s. Okay. There were maybe 15 people there for this seance when John Johnson appeared to Sylvia during the seance. And while she was speaking to him, these 15 people that were there all heard this odd, low buzzing noise in their heads. In their heads? While she was talking to Jan Janssen, John Johnson, whoever. Weird. Yeah. And it's actually really spooky. Like I said, the That's Interesting show sent photographers. And one photographer was using a high-speed camera, like a normal camera. And the other one was using this infrared camera. Mm -hmm. And they're snapping pictures as Sylvia is talking to John Johnson, who was apparently standing at the end of the aisle. So everyone was instructed to sit down at this point. So they're all sitting in a Toys R Us aisle. (laughs) Okay. And and Sylvia is looking down the aisle and she's saying, oh, I, I, you know, I feel connected to him. And I watched this. It's crazy. She's like, "Uh, I sense John. I sense him. He's at the end of the aisle. He's leaning on the right of the aisle. He has his hands in his pockets. And the photographers take pictures of this. 
the regular camera, the high-speed camera, doesn't pick up anything. Nothing. But the infrared camera. I have to show you this picture. <gasps> oh my gosh. <laughs> that is the most formed form spirit I have ever seen. It is very clearly a man leaning on the side of the aisle. He's a tall, thin man. No hat on. Just It looks like a jean jacket or a jacket of some sort leaning on the side with his hands in his pocket. It's, yeah. it's so distinct. Yeah. Yeah. It's very distinct. Uh, there was actually a time, too, where she tells John Johnson, like, can you please kneel so that I can see you better? And the photos taken at this point show on the infrared cra- camera, it shows the figure is now kneeling. No. So it is in, it's crazy. So John Johnson lived there when the farm was there in like the 1800s. And then this, it, he's been seen too, apparently by like employees in like trousers and like a white long linen, like working shirt. Okay. Mm-hmm. So even after this seance, Sylvia would go back to the Toys R Us to talk to John Johnson. On one occurrence, he stated to her, quote, Have mercy on me, Beth. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. (gasps) Is that not just so creepy? It is creepy. I mean, he was a preacher. That makes sense. But wow. Since she had promised him she would not bring up the fact that he was dead, Mm -hmm. they would chat about other things. The most common thing they discussed was the annoying children that visited the Toys R Us. (laughs) (laughs) When the show That's Interesting aired, they had asked her, so is the ghost still there? And she replied, yes. She had just recently taken her granddaughter to the store and she saw the ghost in aisle 13. Oh my gosh. Now, I'm going to be a Bettina here a little bit because, yes, like I said, the Murphy family did own the farm there in the 1800s. And all that's true. But the census shows no record of a John Johnson living there from Sweden. And but but there are a number of Swedish immigrants that did work on the farm that were unnamed. OK, so, so could have been one very of them. possible. Right. But the dates that Sylvia gave where John Johnson died in 1881, it's kind of off. I mean, I guess it could be plausible, but there's no record dying. There's no record of a man dying by an axe wound in 1881. And by 1881, Elizabeth, his beloved, she would have already been married and moved to the East Coast at this time because she got married in like 1865. Oh, so she had she was gone like 20 years. <laughs> but I guess where you could make it realistic is that maybe she came back to visit her family, visit mm. the farm. And that's when he fell in love with her. And then he really couldn't have her because she was already married. Or he was in love with her before she got married. And so he was really in love with her for 20 something years. Yeah. Well, that pined. makes it really sad. Pined for her. And then he kept seeing her because she'd come and visit her family. They were wealthy, so she could afford to mm-hmm. do that. Yes, and she married a very wealthy guy, too. So I don't know. But I, regardless. I, I would de- I would just like roll my eyes. But man, that picture is so crazy. Regardless of the census and all that, the store showed signs of being haunted for years. Employees sensing someone holding the bottom of the ladder for them whenever they had to climb it. 
hey, as long as it wasn't shaking. That's- that would be so scary if I sent somebody at the bottom of the ladder. Like, that would be, are they going to push me? Like, yeah, oh, I think that'd make it even scarier. Oh. Aisle 15C always seemed to smell like a garden. Huh? Oh. Yeah. So I wonder if that's like where the flowers were on the farm. I don't know. <laughs> and my favorite story. Oh, okay. This is weird. My f- my favorite story was a night crew waxing the floors one yeah. night. Saw the same teddy bear in every aisle. <laughs> as they s- I told you there was a teddy bear. <laughs> oh, I'm freaking out right I now. I told you. <laughs> As they slowly worked their way through the store cleaning every aisle, they'd see the same teddy bear. <laughs> That's creepy. In 2007, there was an article on Snopes.com where the guy O'Brien gave a statement. He had worked stocking shelves at the store for about 18 years. Quote, I don't believe in ghosts, but you feel a breeze behind you. Someone calls your name and there's nobody there. Funny things happen here that you can't explain. Like I said, the store closed in 2018. And after it closed, a local radio host saw the cashier lights in the store going crazy one night. Hmm? So think at each cashier station, there's you know a big light above it. Oh, yeah. But yeah. you'd have to turn on the light from each individual cashier station right to say that was open that, yeah okay so he's outside and he if you want me to i can show you the video it's crazy so he it's outside and he sees the lights just going crazy and it's not like one going on here and there it's like aisle two and six are on and then eight and four are on and then and they're like going fast 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 like just it's crazy <laughs> okay After the store closed, the Halloween store spirit moved in. Oh, good match. (laughs) (laughs) But then the building remained empty until this fall. And REI, I guess it's a sporting goods store. Yeah, top of the line. Oh, okay. So REI's sporting goods store is opening there in the old Toys R Us this fall. I think it might already be open now. (laughs) Good luck. And I'm really curious to know if there's still activity or maybe Jan Janssen moved on finally after all the creeps he saw at the spirit store I don't know <laughs> he was like man I was sick of kids but this Halloween garbage what is this maybe I am dead holy smokes <laughs> and I've gone to hell <laughs> yeah I want to know if that store shows any signs of being haunted Oh my gosh. Okay, you told me to stop talking about the bear, I know. But as soon so as So why you did said, you picture a bear when I said Toys R Us? Beth, that I is swear so to you. Weird. I swear to you, as soon as you said it and yeah, you know, in this place and Toys R Us, a picture of a bear, I mean, just prominently came to my mind. That That's weird. Just boom. That's you're a seer, mom. That's creepy. Was that thunder just now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, our listeners are like bouncing around with us. Lightning, thunder, <laughs> Betty Short, Black Dahlia, Blue Dahlia, suspects, suspects, a bear, Toys R Us. 
Bing, bing, wow. bong. Balls bouncing down the aisle. Balls bouncing through this episode. Cool story. And I have got to post that picture. Of a bear? No, of that spirit. I, yes. It's creepy. I need <laughs> to know that resource because that was just not so. I will send you the link to the Snapchat video. I will send you the link to the picture and we will post those on our website because it is awesome. You guys have to see this stuff. It's crazy. It's the best vision of a person ghost I've ever seen. It's a full spectrum. Apparition. That's the word. It's a full, (laughs) full body apparition. Yes. It's crazy. There, we finally got to (laughs) the name of it. took us long enough. (laughs) Mom, Good I'm great. the one that's tired. You <laughs> think that we'd never talked about the spirit stuff before. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, next week we will be covering the state of New Mexico. That's right. I've got the true crime again. Yes. It's interesting. It's a story that, oh, probably a few people know, but most people know the picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... We'll talk about that next week. (laughs) Oh, cliffhanger. (laughs) All right, sweetheart. Well, thank you to our patrons for this yummy cocktail this week. Surf's up, dude. And (laughs) if you want to if you want to buy us a drink, please join us on Patreon. Uh, You can join us on the Patreon app. You can just look up Killer Hangover Podcast or find us on Patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. The link is also in the show notes of this episode. All of our resources and all the photos and videos that we talked about are going to be on our website, KillerHangoverPodcast.com. And you can find us on social media, Instagram, Facebook. And jump on that merch. We've posted some photos on our website and we will keep posting on our social media Buy some merch for yourself. Have your significant other buy some merch for you for Christmas. Buy Mm -hmm. something for your mom. We have merch. So check it out. So excited. They're so cool. Yeah, it's awesome. We're really excited about it. Well, this was another fun one, mom. Interesting. It was an interesting one. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, (laughs) listeners, send me your send us your ideas of suspects for the Black Dahlia. We Please. really want to hear from you and we will talk about it. Yes, so we will. Because we'll call I really you wanna, out. <laughs> I want to share that. That would be that'd be a fun little episode we could release. That'd be really fun. Just I want to know what people think for reals. For reals. Okay, sweetheart. Well, cheers, mama. Cheers. I love you, kid. <laughs>